2005-2006 week continues here on Locked on Phoenix Suns. Welcome into a special Thursday edition of the show. Today I am joined by the great Jack McCallum, longtime Sports Illustrated reporter, prolific NBA author, and the author of Seven Seconds or Less, the definitive book on not only the Suns, but this season in particular, as I joke in our conversation, which is coming up in just a minute, Jack literally wrote the book on the 0506 team, so we couldn't think of anybody better to bring on to our show this week, and Jack was kind enough to come on as he's recovering from knee replacement surgery and dealing with, as we all are, uh, social distancing and, and the hectic nature of what's going on, maybe ended up being the perfect time to ask him. Not a lot for anyone to do right now. To that end, though, I really hope that we can bring you some joy getting to revisit this awesome and fun Suns team on the 15th anniversary of, uh, of the 0506 season. We get into Steve Nash, his MVP, back-to-back MVP season. We get into what Jack makes of the way that so many of these guys' careers have played out, whether that's uh, Sean Marion, the regret that Jack has about the way Marion was portrayed, some of the conversations they've had over the years, and uh, James Jones. I really wanted to ask Jack about James Jones, a guy that is uh, really portrayed as sort of a clueless kid in the book, but ultimately obviously went on to win championships in the NBA and become the general manager of the 2019-20 Suns. So uh, all of that, including some uh, breakdown analysis, I'm not sure. We talk about Robert Sarver a little bit and what Jack made of him, why uh, he was pretty bullish on Sarver as an owner coming out of the 0506 season and what has happened since. So all of that and more, honestly, a highlight of my time doing this show, of my time covering this team to get to talk to Jack and revisit what is one of my favorite teams ever, really the team that that made me a Suns fan. And um, as I tweeted on our at locked on PHX Suns Twitter account, I have a a laminated poster of Boris Diaw and James Jones that I've had ever since uh, I bought a Sean Marion jersey with my allowance when I was a kid. Like this is for me a pretty, pretty memorable, pretty awesome team to go back and look at and, and nothing better than talking about it, revisiting it with the great Jack McCallum. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. I hope you will continue with us next week or tomorrow, I guess, as we revisit uh, some of the the playoff games as we did for our 92-93 breakdown. We'll be watching back some of the playoff games from this run and uh, just having fun. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed our two weeks looking back at the best teams in Suns history, and I really hope, as I've said, that you love this conversation with Jack McCallum. So let's, without further ado, dive right in. All right, could not be more excited to be joined by Jack McCallum, formerly of Sports Illustrated, wrote literally the book on the 0506 Suns, who we are talking about this week on the show. It's called Seven Seconds or Less. I'm sure if you are a Suns fan listening to this show, you have read the book. Um, Jack, it's it's interesting to talk to you. We weren't planning on doing a, a big revisiting of all of the most famous Suns teams in history, but with the the suspension of play, we've kind of had to get creative. It's it's coincidental though that we are at the 15th anniversary of this team, and 
I'm curious, just, you know, you've written many books, you've, you've dug deep into many teams and many personalities in the NBA throughout your career, but what sticks out? What, what rings all these years later about being around this team, getting to cover this group of guys in the 0506 season? Well, the first thing is kind of journalistically, professionally that, <laughs> you know, every time the subject comes up, I can't believe uh, how fortunate I was. Um, you know, we, by the time I did the Suns book, we were pretty much in that age of athletes and journalists not having the relationship they used to. Mm -hmm. uh, teams traveled on charter jets, so you could, couldn't get close to them. I used to ride, you know, the team bus and back in the 90s, you know, that's how you'd get a yeah. lot of stuff. You'd be on the same plane and they might come back and coach and talk to you or you would go up so you could get, there was just more chances of interaction. So for Mike Antoni <laughs> to just basically say, you can come in and look at anything. And once in a while, I'm going to tell you, uh, I don't want this in. Uh, Mike had this funny thing. If he really didn't want me to put it in, he would say, if this is in the book, I'll kill you. <laughs> and then there would be maybe two dozen other things, which is, I'd rather not have you print it, but, you know, and beside that, it was kind of like free reign. So I would say years later, um, that is pretty much resonate what resonates with me the most. And I've kept up a relationship with to the extent that I can with those guys, particularly Mike, mm -hmm. uh, Alvin Gentry. Uh, Phil Weber, Dan D'Antoni, Mark Ivroni, I've, I've lost a little uh, contact with. Like he sort of, yeah, he sort of disappeared. Not a guy you hear about a lot right now. Yeah. Um, Mike is obviously, I, I think he has the, the perception. He's been, you know, this is the most cogent example, I guess, but I know there's been maybe let's have a guy embedded for one playoff run and things like that. He, he, he's open to the media, I think a little more than, than some are, but that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. I mean, setting aside the fact that Mike was so open to doing this, do you think this type of a book can even get written in 2020 to the level that you were involved every day? I hate to use the cliche. You know, it's funny. We're, we're doing this as the backdrop of the Jordan documentary coming on. Sure. And the Jordan documentary is going to be successful based on, you know, they had access one season, 97, 98, this film crew happened to get, you know, whoever they ask in Chicago, they got all this uh, access to, you know, background with Michael on that season. That's why the documentary, although it's going to go all over the place, centers on kind of that, uh, that season. So that was 97, 98. My book was 05, 06. Since then, um, to get that kind of access, uh, I, I don't think it could be. First of all, I hate to use the cliche, perfect storm, but there was a lot of things going on. Phoenix was not, you know, a town loaded with, you couldn't do it in New York. Sure. No one, you couldn't, there's, there's 55 people covering every single thing. Mm -hmm. Number two, the Suns were a prominent team because of what they had done the year before coming out of nowhere. But they still weren't the Lakers, the Celtics, the Spurs, the Knicks. You know, they were still kind of on the rise. And then thirdly, 
they just happened to have this brand of basketball that was taking the NBA kind of by storm. I mean, the number of people that have told me the Suns were their most popular team back then. Yeah. Um, so you had all these things kind of playing into it. So I was really just, I was really fortunate to have plugged into that. I mean, if you couldn't write at least a pretty good book <laughs> about sure. that, you should really be out of the business. Uh, if you couldn't, if you couldn't bring that one, uh, if you couldn't bring that one home, you should be out of the business. Well, that's very humble of you to say. I mean, it's a, it's a very cherished book. And some, as somebody who was growing up at that time, this is, this is the team that, that kind of made me an NBA fan, made me a Suns fan, uh, maybe gone away a little bit in recent years, of course, but, uh, I'm curious, walk me through the timeline here. I'm sure you've gone through it before, but as we revisited the season, it was, this season is almost identified by how different it was from 0405. You have Joe Johnson before the year having his falling out with the franchise, Amari Stoudemire, which you chronicle the fact that he was supposedly going to come back, but ultimately sort of doesn't. Um, you have the Brian Colangelo situation midway through the year where he, he ends up parting ways with the team, but how different was the story in the book you ended up writing from what you expected when you saw 0405, the success they had and decided to try something like this till the point when you're actually putting the book together and, you know, suddenly the cast of characters is, is dramatically different from maybe what you thought going in. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, uh, I think if you're in the business long enough and God knows I have been at that point, you know, I was, how old at that point, you know, I was 56, 57 years old. I had been doing this for 35 years. You tend to be a pessimist. So my hope was a, the sons would be open to this. They would share their stories. Uh, I could get behind the scenes, almost a distant B to that was, would they be good? I mean, the year before when they had won, would they get out to 27 and five? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 27, 28 and five. <laughs> I mean, at still to come back, I don't think anyone expected that. So I was going in kind of pessimistic about how good they would be. And I knew at the beginning of the year, you got to get playoff games. Yeah. You have to get into the playoffs. So the key to that book was the absolute happiest I was was game seven when they beat the Lakers. And I had that incredible first round playoff series oh, yeah. to work with. Had that not happened, the whole structure of the book would have been different. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have started with the playoffs. I would have gone more chronologically. Um, and then when they had been almost equally incredible series with the Clippers, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, that I couldn't imagine when I started the book. So that, made the book in my mind when they had those when I think back to things in basketball that I've experienced and been around and I you know wrote a book on a dream team and I was around there there was nothing like living those trying to think how many days it would have been 28 24 days of those playoff series with the Lakers and Clippers there's there was nothing like that nothing comes close to that experience so that made the book when the Suns came down from one th came back one three with the Lakers and then beat a really good Clippers team 
yeah. that that sort of I couldn't have seen when I started uh, when I started doing the book. No, I mean, yeah, at, reading the book, it, it's obvious that those moments just were were so captivating. You you almost could have if you didn't even have the regular season little timeout sections that you have in there, it, it would have been it would have been perfectly good. Those are just cherry on top at that point. But I, I want to get into some, there was some criticism that I overthought it a little bit. And I understand that, that I should just, I should have just started from the beginning of the season. And I can't really remember why I did it this way. I started out with this scene of Steve Nash, you know, Mike asking if there was anything to say after they had finally gotten beat uh, by the Mavericks. And Steve in his freezing cold water, you know, like so overcome with emotion that he couldn't talk. And once I sort of started it there, I kind of went back to the playoffs. But there would have been an argument to just do it chronologically because invariably, I certainly left some funny stuff out that happened in December. You know, sure, sure. Or, or January. So I've, I've rethought that. But you do that with any book. Uh, gee, I could have done this different. Sure. Well, let's get into some of those those cast of characters when we come back with Jack. Uh, just a quick reminder before we do that, subscribe to the show wherever you are listening, Spotify, Google, Apple, whatever platform you're on. We will be, we have no choice but to go back through history a little bit more. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying it. Hit that subscribe button and we'll be right back with Jack. So I think Suns fans, maybe modern Suns fans who go back and revisit your book or people who have been longtime fans of this team, Jack, might uh, chuckle a little bit with the, the characterization of James Jones as now the, the player who has become the Suns general manager, but a guy at that point who I think you're not characterizing him by your own words. You're, you're reporting on the, the vibe that, that was around the team at that time, and it was a guy who I just don't think was... I mean, well-respected sounds strong, but but certainly like, oh, the young guy who we really don't know what's going to happen with that guy. He's maybe not, he might not be long-term here kind of player. And he goes on to not only become beloved for Suns fans, but win championships and and now become the general manager of the team. What do you just make of your memories of him and squaring that with what he's turned into as a, as a player and a, a person? Well, you have to watch out. You know, one of those things in a business and you got to keep learning it is, and James is a good example of it, Amari is another one. You have to be careful not to go overboard on proclaiming someone what they are when they're, I can't remember how old James was when that season, but what I remember, he was a kid. I remember being in a locker room and he was one of the ones eating, you know, greasy food 45 minutes before the game. And Nash used to just look over and go, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and But it wasn't because James Jones was a bad guy. It was because he was very, very, very young and immature. And if I was being honest, yes, I am very surprised that he matured into what I would call having the gravitas to run a team. Sure. But that's what I said. You know, you got to be careful. Amare... You know, it was easy, and I'm sure there were times in the book when, oh, what a stupid young kid, and what a... But Amari went on to sort of be a thoughtful, kind of spiritual-seeking guy. I know it's got a kind of a far-out thing to it also. But what you are... 
what you are when you're 23 and 24 years old um, is not always what you are when you're 34 years old. And it sure as hell isn't what you are when you're 44 years old. So uh, if I was being honest, yes, James surprised me because he did just seem like a little bit of a lost kid with a with a good three-point shot. <laughs> so I'm glad he's risen where he was because I always he was a very intelligent kid. I always enjoyed uh, talking to him, and I'm glad he's had the success he has, although it's a tough job. <laughs> He's, it's a tough job. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, these aren't, when Nash, you, these aren't Nash, Marion, uh, Stoudemire, Raja, you know? No. Well, when you can get a job a year removed from the NBA, I think you take what you get, but it is, it is interesting to read the book and, and remember the the way that he was perceived while he was here and how, I mean, you meet, you meet up with LeBron James and get along with him, you know, things are going to go well for you, but Stoudemire is obviously the other one. You talk about young and especially just the environment that he grew up in. I think it's understandable that it took him a bit to to acclimate to being a professional. But uh, did you, I guess I'm just curious, did you think as you made your way through that season, did you think by the time the playoffs rolled around that Amari would be part of the team and, and recover and come back to the floor? No, um, I didn't. because Just because I heard so much of the back chatter, uh, back chatter is the wrong word. It wasn't back chatter. It was chatter. It was talk. It was the coaches trying to figure out. And I think their position, as I recall, it was, I mean, they desperately wanted Amari. I mean, when he went down that day when, what? He's having uh, microfracture surgery? I mean, that was a really dark day at training camp. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the situation over the next couple of months was we got to get him back. We got to get him back. We got to get him back. And then when he came back for the disastrous short spell, it was sort of like, okay, we're not going to win this way. So I would say as much as I might've thought that they wanted him back for the playoffs talking from the coaches. Uh, I don't, I don't think they did. I think they thought it was just too much of a risk to try to work him back uh, at that point. And there was a lot in there about Amari not, you know, rehab is very difficult. I'm rehabbing like a knee replacement. (laughs) It turns Mm -hmm. out right now. So I'm not going to be the one talking about, oh, you know, if he would have done the rehab better, he could have got back. I know that some people in the Suns organization believe that. I know that they do. Um, and had he come back, would that have made a difference? Can we can we not picture him running by the Dallas Mavericks in the in the Western yeah. Finals? Uh, maybe, but I, I can't be the one to proclaim a hundred percent. Amari dogged it, and that's why he you know that's why he didn't get back. I just sure. don't know. I've always thought that uh, one of the the underrated decisions from that that stretch of, of son's history was, was Mike deciding, like you said, it was about what three games he played and, and Mike just had to pull the plug. It's not, we can't be figuring this out while we're making a playoff push, but uh, the other guy, the, the, the oft forgotten and uh, much frustrated guy in this mix is, uh, is Sean Marion. And I think, you know, his relationship with the franchise, his still a guy who's not in, in the team's ring of honor to much fans chagrin and, and a player who 
you know, I, I think was maybe kind of known for the, the, the frustration that he had with different people. And that's disappointing because he was a player who gave so much to this team and, and, and entertained, you know, a generation of fans, but uh, you know, understanding that you maybe didn't cover him throughout the whole rest of his career goes on to win a championship and, and all of the rest. Uh, what, what do you remember about whether it was him and, and his, you know, disappointment with the way Nash took the spotlight or the eventual, you know, fact that he gets traded? Just what do you make of Marion's time and, and the way that you remember him at least and the way that maybe he kind of places into this seven seconds or less era? Well, uh, if I feel bad about one thing about the book, I'd say it would be Sean. Um, people think that you write books. I remember the, they didn't say it so much about the Suns book, but the Dream Team book I wrote later. Oh, he was just doing that to suck up to the players and just sort of, that's the last reason you write a book because players don't even read books. I remember during the season, <laughs> Steve asked me, uh, I had written a book about the Celtics and Steve asked me if I could get him a copy. And to this day, whenever I see Nash, you know, I said, yeah, you read the Celtics book, but you still haven't read seven seconds or less. Oh, he won't. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't, you don't write a book to thinking about what the players are going to think about it. I mean, but I know, uh, I was happened to be the first game of the following season. Um, I was doing a story. It just so happened. And it was the sons were there. I think we were in Seattle and Sean, you know, took me aside and was very, very angry and thought that I screwed him and thought that, uh, whatever negative thing I could bring, uh, to it was, uh, that I brought down upon him unfairly. Huh. And I'm sure to a certain extent, part of that was my decision about, what I thought he brought to the team. And part of it was what the coaches thought. They just found it very, very difficult to get Sean completely harmonious on the same page. He thought rightly so um, that he, he flagged not only intention to Steve, but also to Amari. And I remember one night, it's a small thing. It was a home game and there was a drum crew. I think it was, some kind of, you know, percussion crew out in the court. Yeah. And let's say there were 12 people and eight of them had on Nash jerseys and four mm -hmm. of them had on Amari jerseys. Yeah. You know? Now yeah. is, is that stupid of Sean to think shit, they can't even have one of my jerseys. Yeah, it is. But yet I kind of get it. I mean, Sean was the one who, you know, sacrificed a lot. He hated being the four. You know, he hated being, you know, the big guy. He wanted to be a three because obviously he profiled, you know, more in that way. Mm -hmm. But Mike thought he was so much more effective than he was. So uh, a lot of the bitterness and everything that Sean felt was kind of petty. But that doesn't mean some of it wasn't justified. And I remember when he won. Um, with the Mavericks that I was sort of semi-retired by then, but I was at the game for some reason at the finals. And I did go up to Sean. I said, Sean, I mean this sincerely. I am so happy you, you won a championship. Yeah. I, and I really, uh, really, really was. But uh, 
Sean just found a little bit too much. I remember there was a game against the Clippers, and this this struck me as extraordinary. They've won this the crucial game six when Raja wasn't there. Yep. Raja had been suspended. Mm-hmm. And Sean had swooped in and gotten this key rebound. I think it was an overtime game or a double overtime game. Believe it or believe it, I still have forgotten some things. And we were sitting in the locker room. I mean, th- this was one of the most incredible Suns wins in history. I mean, to have won on the road without Raja, they're probably going to win game seven and get to the Western Finals, which they did. And the TV is on up there. And Charles is talking about Steve Nash in overtime. Mm-hmm. And Sean was sitting there with a towel over his head and pissed off that he wasn't getting mentioned. And uh, I found that pretty, I've, as much as I could sometimes sympathize with Sean, yeah. I found that to be <laughs> absolutely astounding. Sure. I, I, I really, I, I, I really did, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt ambivalent about Sean, but as I said, I, he was a good guy. He was always good to me. Yeah. Uh, and I, to a certain extent, feel bad about the criticism I gave him, uh, in the book. Yeah. You know, I think there's guys like that at a certain point, it's clear that he derives pride and, and drive from, you know, the, the chip on his shoulder and, and finding those maybe, uh, nicks from from different people that that maybe aren't always actually there but i was thrilled when he won with the mavericks as well it's just a, a cool and the fact that you know some kind sometimes guys win and they aren't really involved but he was a an integral part to that and i think finally got some of the the respect that he felt he didn't get all those years so so a cool ending for him let's talk about a couple more characters here as we make our way through with jack just a quick reminder as you're spending a little more time at home tell your smart speaker to play the podcast Locked on Phoenix Suns, and it'll queue up our latest episode for you and be there with you during your, uh, maybe you're doing some chores, maybe you're eating, whatever it is. Again, play podcast Locked on Phoenix Suns. More with Jack in just a second. Mike D'Antoni, a guy we touched on a moment ago, I have a pretty simple question. If I had told you when you were writing this book and covering Mike that, 15 years from now, A, he would still be coaching a great team, and B, would not have won an NBA championship. What would you make of that? Um, I remember, you know, I probably put it someplace in the book uh, about Alvin, which was, you know, praising Alvin. You couldn't have had a better guy to be around than Alvin Gentry. It's just, it's impossible. Um, and I remember writing, uh, Alvin, you know, great coach respected Mike depends on him a lot. He'll probably never become, uh, he'll probably never get another NBA head coaching shot. <laughs> well, he not only did that, he had the sons you know, uh-huh. and he finally beat the Spurs, you know, whatever year that 2009 10. or 10 after Mike was gone, yep. you know, beat the Spurs in a playoff series. So, uh, as the saying goes, you know, you never know. Um, I probably thought, uh, as I wrote that book, if you would have asked me then, I probably would have thought that uh, the Suns would have won one and Mike would have won one. 
because yeah. I thought that team would have made maybe the next step. That the following year after I did them, there was 0405 when they got together, surprised the heck out of the league. 0506 was the year I covered. Uh, I was doing the book. The next two Suns teams were really good. I mean, they were really good. Yep. They just ran into, you know, a really good uh, Spurs team. And as you talk to them in later years, I've been around Mike a lot since then, Steve Nash. We've done a couple things, a couple filmings. You cannot overestimate the degree to which all those guys, primarily Mike, Steve, who was the leader of the team, talk about Joe Johnson. That if that move had been made, um, and that team that came back in the year that I was did the book, that that team with Joe Johnson and presumably going forward, if he would have gotten a four-year deal or something, that would have been the team. That they really, really uh, regret that Joe, uh, the Joe Johnson thing, and that didn't that didn't strike me until years later when how many times they go back to that. So they feel that would have been that with Joe, uh, that would have been the team to win a title. So yeah, I'm, you know, simple answer to your question, which is what you ask. Yeah. I would have thought Mike would have won a title. Well, and you see, I mean, they, the, the quest that they went on from that point forward to find a player that looks and plays a whole lot like Joe Johnson, whether it's Grant Hill or Jason Richardson on through the next five, six years, they, they needed that that other wing player and basically never found one quite as good as Joe. And and so, yeah, it's, it's certainly an inflection point, but I think that takes us the, the falling out with Joe or whatever you want to call it takes us to Robert Sarver the, who took over as owner the prior year. And I think you really started to see him spread his wings during the 0506 season, probably the best insight into a lot of the things that we sort of anecdotally hear about Sarver is in your book, even though it was such a long time ago. I think he's he's a little bit more tame, and you kind of give some insight into the fact that the coaching staff felt as if he was really starting to learn the game, learn the league, learn the business a little more. But, you know, between Joe ultimately asking to be traded in the sign-in trade with Atlanta and then Brian Colangelo uh, unceremoniously leaving that year, uh, you, you kind of see the the overreach, the over whatever, uh, the control that, that Sarver tried to exert over the team that I think that really hasn't gone away. Um, what do you, you've been around other owners, you've been around other teams. I'm sure you've heard about probably guys that, that, that were even worse and crazier than Sarver. Certainly there have been plenty, but uh, what do you, what do you remember from seeing a guy that early on in his tenure in such a, a monumental franchise and, and what, what he was like? And, and maybe I guess just from afar, how you think he's kind of changed since then? Well, it's a little bit like, uh, the, you know, the James Jones thing we talked about. I mean, I got Robert early, yeah. <laughs> you know, Very. uh, and part of, you know, so the Robert in the book is a guy who's just trying to figure out how to do this. And I know that there were parts in the book I've heard. I know that his wife uh, did not like the book and the characterizations of, of Robert, but I sort of liked him. And what I kind of remember was a guy who 
was prone to overreach, was prone, was understood that some of the things you did that you had to do in the NBA business, restructure contracts. What? You didn't do them in the banking business. You didn't do them in the real estate business. He had some things to learn. But what I kind of remember was he would be willing to do that. He would come in late. He would come in once in a while to film sessions. You have to understand how much NBA guys look at films. And I'm, and Dan Tony's not even really considered a film guy. But there's yeah. still a lot of watching going on. And the number of times Robert, having done something that might have pissed them off, and the big thing was you know not re-signing Joe through that whole year, how many times he would come in there and really legitimately try to learn the game and listen to them and be on their side and go out and tell the Laker fans, you know, F you, you know, yep. to get into a fight with, uh, you know, Penny Marshall. So the Robert that I saw, uh, you know, I really kind of uh, enjoyed. And so far as things that surprised me, frankly, with all the sons have gone through, and that Robert buying that team and having these heights of having them become an elite franchise and then the tough years that followed, I guess I'm a little surprised he's still in the game. And uh, I haven't seen him. Uh, if I go back and see him, um, I wonder if he'll still want to shave my eyebrows, which is the first thing he always said to me when he saw me. He thought my eyebrows were, you know, uh, too thick and he wanted to uh, shave them. That's very um, strange. Yeah. Um, but I remember him sort of delightfully trying to learn it, trying to learn just like his kids were trying to learn how to be fans. And, you know, he was trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. And I think it it took him a while. But so far as there being crazier owners in Sarver, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, well, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think anyone who's met the guy probably feels similarly to you. The interactions I've had with him are, are never negative, which is part of what's hard to to measure about the stories we hear from the media about the way he handles the team. Sometimes I think it's more of a lack of patience than anything. And I think that's why your, your book kind of gives so concise insight into that is we see the way that just these little things can start to fray and, and turn into something that you go on to regret, whether it's Mike or, uh, you know, David Griffin or, you know, on down the list throughout history, Ryan McDonough most recently. So uh, definitely interesting. I want to get out of here on one simple question for you. It was something we revi- we revisited with uh, the passing of, of Kobe Bryant earlier this year. The 2005-06 MVP race. So Nash wins back-to-back. I don't know if you had a vote at that time. Not sure. Many people think Kobe should have gotten that one, and Nash sort of got it because it was like, well, we gave it to him last year, and, and they're even better, or he's even better the second time around. Did you have a vote, and do you think, in hindsight, that Nash was the the proper winner of that year's MVP award? I did have a vote. I had a vote for MVP, and I had a vote for Coach of the Year. Okay. And I did not vote for Steve, and I did not vote for Mike. I voted for Pop. Okay. And Mike said, I think I did. I think I voted for Popovich. And Mike used to kid me about, you know, and I told him that. And he used to say, well, you know, your vote kind of really flipped the whole thing. I would have won, but then uh, Pop <laughs> won instead. So far as Steve went, I think I remember writing this honestly that uh, I didn't vote for Kobe. Um, I didn't vote for Kobe that year. 
I can't remember who I voted for, but I did not vote for Steve. I just thought, you know, when you see the positives when you're around, but you also see the negatives. And I just remembered a couple of games. I remember Chauncey Billups just grinding up Steve one day in Detroit, you know, that Steve couldn't stop him at all. So maybe it was something about the defense. Maybe it was something about me not wanting to be around the team and looking like I had favoritism. So I sure. reacted the other way. That's fair. Yeah. Um, and that's very possible. But that was really a wide open year. And I remember some discussion later about and getting in the middle of it about whether when Steve won the second time, it wasn't about race. I I just think that, you know, um, by then we were too far along that particular year. It was really, really hard to find, you know, there was Kobe, there was LeBron, there was Chauncey Billups, there was Steve. And, you know, there's a lot of times it's really clear. You know, the year Westbrook triple-double, you know, it's got to be Westbrook, you know. Sure. That was one of those years where it really wasn't a clear winner. And I'm glad Steve won, but he did not get my – he did not get my, he did not get my uh, vote for uh, – I think I voted him – I think I voted him second, but I did not vote him first. Well, there you go. All right, Jack. Well, it has been awesome. Uh, nobody better to talk to as we revisit the 0506 team and uh, look forward to uh, to the rest of the week with you guys. Tune in tomorrow. We'll be listening through some or watching through some old playoff games from that year's run. Check out the book if you have not. And uh, thank you so much, Jack. Okay. Thank you.